Um, I'd like you to turn with me to the book of Romans and to Romans chapter 5. You'll find it on page 1132 of the church editions of the Bible in the pew. We're just three weeks into a new series which we have called Being Human and this morning is the last of three introductory sections. And then after that we'll begin to think and look at some very practical issues. There's been a very long list of things suggested that we should be looking at. Um, And I did a bit of an A to Z uh, for some folks and passed it around during the week and it is a fairly lengthy list. Um, And it will provide, I think, lots of material for us to think about as we, we look at issues about what it means to be human and to be alive today and look to the scripture to give us some guidance and help and direction. And over the weeks that, uh, the last two weeks, what we've been thinking about is the fact that in being human we are made from the dirt. That's not to make you feel bad. It's just to say that being human, if God thought it was a good idea to gather the dust of the ground together before he breathed life into us, then being human and having a body is not a problem. It's the way God intended you to be. He intended this earth to be here, maybe not in quite the mess we have made of it, Um, So being here and being human is part and parcel of God's purposes for us. We thought about what it means to be made in, not just from, but made in and made in the image of God. And we thought about some of the aspects of that. We thought about what it means to be made for. Last week we were thinking about being made for relationship with God, with each other, with the earth that he has created, and for glory. And we also thought last week of the reality that in fact we have made a mess. We're made from the dirt, made in the image of God, made for relationship and for glory. We have made a mess, but in the goodness of God it is possible that we are being made new. And that's the theme that I want us to think about for a while this morning. Having said that, the language of being made new is sometimes misunderstood. The passage in 2 Corinthians uh, 15 or 5 sorry and and verse 17 which is often referred to about being new creations and new creatures in Christ is sometimes talked about and thought about as if and, and, and promoted to other people who aren't Christians as if in fact when you become a Christian everything becomes hunky dory now I know that salesmen never lie they just have a job to do I know that because I was one I started out life as a cash register salesman part of the economic lowlife. I then transferred sideways to become a Christian book salesman. It was a sideways move, definitely, still in the economic evolutionary slime, but uh, beginning to crawl out of it slightly, and eventually became an advertising salesman. Four years of my life were spent driving myself around, learning the art of countering every possible objection, closing the deal, selling the product, discounting the inflated, and inflating the worthless. It was also four years of learning humility and patience. So I've always been suspicious of salesmen and saleswomen. It's not that I don't trust them, it's just that I pity them. I've been there, done that, worn the sloppy t-shirt, and recognized all the patter. I have a particular aversion to evangelical salesmen. You see, it's not that people tell lies in the name of the gospel, but there can be a fair bit of mis-selling. One of the great themes of the New Testament is this theme of new life in Christ. But I hope that our series in Matthew helped us understand that the gospel is not merely about individual quality of life 
and individual tickets to heaven. It is about the kingdom of heaven. It is about the establishment of the kingdom of God, which is of much greater scope. Jesus came to establish the kingdom, the reign of God, which includes our salvation, but also ultimately the reconciliation of all things to God. I have to say, I do think that sometimes the gospel is missold to people. The individualism of some gospel preaching and evangelism can not only do a disservice to the purposes of God, it can overhype what it means to be a Christian. The idea that the reason for the incarnation, the death and resurrection of Christ, was mainly because God has simply a wonderful plan for your life is frankly ridiculous. The idea that new life in Christ could mean living on some super spiritual plane or living constantly above the ordinary or living always with an unshakable sense of purpose misses the point. And so this morning, as I think about this theme of being made new, I want us to think about it in the context of how Paul speaks about it in Romans chapters 5 to 8. Don't panic, it's not verse by verse. So let's think a little bit about what he says in Romans 5 to 8, about being made new. One of the things that Paul talks about is our new relationship in Christ. Paul's language is very radical. He speaks radically about new life in Christ, but it is also tremendously honest. And I hope that by taking this overview of the section, you'll see how it all hangs hangs together. And I hope that that will be an encouragement to you and maybe release you from unrealistic expectations and pressures. In Romans 5, Paul is developing the wonder of what faith in Christ means. Look at what he says in 5 verse 1. It speaks about peace with God. This is what comes to us through the death of Christ and the fact that it is possible to be justified and in a right relationship with God through faith in him. Look what he says in verse 2 about standing in God's grace. Standing in a place of unmerited, unlimited kindness. What a tremendous privilege. Look at what he says in verse 3 about sharing in the hope of glory. Do you remember we looked at Psalm 8 last week and the whole theme of being made for glory. And part and parcel of what it means to be in Christ is this sense of sharing in the hope of glory. In verse 9, he talks about how we are saved from God's wrath, God's just, righteous judgment upon our human rebelliousness and sin. We are saved, delivered from that. In verse 10, he talks about how we are reconciled with God. So we can see here in this opening section of Romans chapter 5, how in Christ there is a recovery of what we were made for. A recovery of relationship and a recovery of glory. There's a summary of it there in verse 17, where Paul says, For if by the trespass of the one man, death reigned through that one man, how much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ? And there's another great summary of it comes in chapter 6 in verse 23, where he says, The wages of sin is death, But the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. This new life in Christ, of which Paul speaks and which the Bible speaks, is the beginning of this restoration and recovery of what we were made for and why we were made. The beginnings of that recovery of what it means to be made 
fully in the image of God. Jesus deals with the mess that we have made and we get to be part of the recovery. We get to stand, as the Bible puts it, in this place of grace to live in the kingdom of God, to be reconciled with God. Now, you couldn't ever undersell that. It is an amazing message and it is a wonderful privilege. This is indeed truly, for us human beings, good news. But as you move into Romans chapter 6 and up to verse 6 of chapter 7, you discover that Paul is not only talking about the new relationship that comes with being made new, he also talks about new choices. He develops the practical implications of this new life, because it is practical. It's not spiritual in some abstract sense. And if you watch his use of terms and language as he works his way through Romans 6 and into chapter 7, on the one hand, he'll speak about being united with Christ in his death and resurrection, which sounds profoundly spiritual and deep and is to our Western ears. But on the other hand, he will tie this with very practical issues of choices, choices about how we live and about how we behave. For example, in verse 2 of chapter 6, he talks about having died to sin. What does that mean? Does that mean you never sin again? You never want to sin again? Does that mean sin is eradicated from your life? Look at what he says in verses 6 and 7 of chapter 6. He talks about we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin because anyone who has died has been freed from sin. Is Paul portraying for us this experience of new life, of being made new? entering this new relationship in which the glory is being restored and saying that sin is no longer an issue? Is that what he's driving at here? Is that how it should be for the Christian? Well, read on a little bit. Look at what he says in verse 11. He says, Therefore, in the same way, count yourselves or consider yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Is he backtracking here? Is he saying that there isn't something that actually happened? You're just to think about it. Look what he says in verse 12. Do not let sin reign in your mortal body. This is about choice. This is about decision making. Look what he says in verse 13. Do not offer the parts of your body to sin. Spiritual change there has been. In verse 14, he talks about how we are not under law, we are under grace. All those themes developed in chapter 5. But practical change there needs to be, and a fair bit of that practical change is about choices. Verses 17 and 18 of chapter 6 say this, But thanks be to God that though you used to be slaves to sin, you wholeheartedly obeyed the form of teaching to which you were entrusted. You have been set free from sin and have become slaves to righteousness. We stand in a different place, the place of grace. We are called to live a different life, a life of obedience, because of this translation that has taken place. New life in Christ means standing in the place of grace and choosing to be obedient. Paul uses the illustration of a woman who is released from marriage by the death of her husband. And what he's saying is, by sharing in Christ's death, by putting our faith and our trust in him, we are released from the hopelessness of the law. And we stand in the place of grace and reconciliation. 
presents a tremendous opportunity, along with the help of God's Spirit, to live as we were intended to live. And on in in chapter 7, in verses 4 to 6, here's what he says. My brothers, you also died to the law through the body of Christ, that you might belong to another, to him who was raised from the dead, in order that we might bear fruit to God. For when we were controlled by the sinful nature, the sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our bodies, so that we bore fruit for death. But now, by dying to what once bound us, we have been released from the law, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. And Paul is talking here about how this new life is a gift. It is a gift from God that we stand in a new place, a place of grace. But this new life is also about choices that we're going to make in terms of how we live, whether according to the old nature and the old way of living, or in obedience to God. When the gospel is oversold by overzealous salesmen, the impression is of some never-failing capacity to live successfully, triumphantly, victoriously. It's sometimes sold as if being saved means becoming impregnable to the attack of the enemy. That every minute of life should be filled with confidence and this sense of purpose and happiness. But that was not Paul's understanding. Paul's understanding was of the huge privilege that it is to stand in the place of grace and be reconciled with God through Christ's death on the cross. But recognizes that there are choices to be made. So he uses the language of obedience. He uses the language of considering yourselves, thinking about yourselves, about not giving yourself to sin, but choosing to give yourself as instruments of righteousness. So it's not surprising, as he develops chapter 7 a little bit further, up to the end of the chapter, that what he talks about are the new struggles that arise. If you read too much into what Paul is saying in Romans 5, about what it means to be in Christ. If your expectation is that all the choices are taken care of for you and that you won't fail in the Christian life, then you need to read carefully what Paul is talking about in Romans chapter 7. Because the transformation from death to life, while completed because of what Jesus did on the cross, is yet to be brought to completion in us when we see him face to face. Because as John says, it is when we see him, we will be like him. And in chapter 7, Paul is saying, the privilege that I've developed in Romans 5 is phenomenal. The reality of the choices about how we live that I've expounded in Romans 6 is significant and important. The new struggles that that gives rise to, we'll talk about here in chapter 7. Because the old nature, the old way of thinking is still very much a real part of me and my life. Look at what he says when he goes on into verse 15 of chapter 7. I do not understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do. But what I hate, I do. And if I do what I do not want to do, I agree the law is good. And as he expands this whole theme about how the law was the thing that brought him to an understanding of his sin, he also expands the theme of continuing to struggle with this sinful nature. And in verse 18 he talks about... um, I know that nothing good lives in me, that is in my sinful nature, for I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. And in verses 21 to 23, he says, I find this law at work. When I want to do good, evil is right there with me, for in my inner being I delight in God's law. 
But I see another law at work in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner to the law of sin at work within my members. Hardly surprising that he makes the exclamation in verse 24, What a wretched man I am! Who will rescue me from this body of death? Paul is not afraid to address the struggles that arise within the context of being human and being a Christian. The Apostle Peter stood up on the day of Pentecost and when he preached on the day of Pentecost he proclaimed Jesus Christ faithfully and gloriously. Thousands and thousands of people were converted. Roman centurions were converted. All kinds of strange and weird and wonderful situations were transformed through Peter's ministry as God worked through him. And yet when he comes to Antioch Paul publicly rebukes him for his sin. Peter The great apostle as he was struggled at times with the old way of thinking. His prejudice got the better of him. If it happens with Peter, it'll happen with you. Don't be complacent. It's not for us to be complacent as Christians. But don't be too hard on yourself either. Don't despair. Don't give up. Bear in mind that this whole struggle about being a Christian and being human only arises because of your faith in Christ. It only arises because of the new life that God gives you and the sense of loyalty to Christ which grows in our hearts. But Paul has more to say on the subject because he carries on into Romans chapter 8 to talk about the new strength that is ours. What hope is there for us, he says in verse 24, and he answers it in verse 25, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. And he develops this in Romans chapter 8. And he says there are four things we need to remember from which we can draw real strength as we struggle as Christians and human beings. In verses 1 to 4 of chapter 8, he says, There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because through Christ Jesus the law of the Spirit of life set me free from the law of sin and death. Remember that if you struggle as a human being and as a Christian, you are no longer condemned. There is nothing to be afraid of other than your own complacency. There is accountability before God, but the condemnation is lifted. In verses 6 to 10, Paul introduces another thing. In verse 6, he talks about how the mind of sinful man is death, but the mind controlled by the Spirit is life and peace. The sinful mind is hostile to God. It doesn't submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Those controlled by the sinful nature cannot please God. And he introduces this theme of the work of the Spirit. He develops it in verses 13 and 14. If you live according to the sinful nature, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live, because those who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. And you did not receive a spirit that makes you a slave again to fear, but you received the spirit of sonship, and by him we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit, that we are God's children. Remember, you are not condemned. The condemnation is lifted. Remember, you are not alone. The Spirit of God abides with you to strengthen and to encourage and equip you 
as you seek to make the right choices and be obedient in your Christian living. Remember, you have an obligation to live right. Verse 12, he says, Brothers, we have an obligation, but it's not to the sinful nature to live according to it. Our obligation is to live in keeping in step with the Spirit and in obedience to Jesus Christ. And the other thing we have to remember is that there is yet more to come. Verse 17, he says, If we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in his sufferings, in order that we may also share in his glory. He says, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. The creation waits in eager expectation for the sons of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the glorious freedom of the children of God. The glory that will be revealed in us. Remember, there is new strength. You draw that new strength as a human being as you seek to live as a Christian from believing and bearing in mind that you are no longer condemned. Christ has taken our place at the cross. There is nothing to be afraid of other than our own complacency. Remember, you are not alone. The Spirit of God God dwells with you to enable and to strengthen and to sustain you. Remember you have an obligation and it is to live right because life continues to be about choices and making good choices. But remember, there is more to come. The glory that is to be revealed is greater than anything that we can imagine. Made from the dirt, made in the image of God, made for relationship and glory, made a mess, being made new in Christ. New in our relationship with him, new in our choices, new in our struggles, new in the strength that comes to us by God's grace. We must not missell the gospel. The gospel is not like going for a nose job to make you look and feel better or a Botox injection, or a hair transplant, or some other life-enhancing product to deal with your self-image problems. But we must not missell the gospel by underselling it. It is magnificent. It is awesome and glorious. And that I get to be part of it is staggering and overwhelming. And that we as a community of people can stand and sing hymns and songs of praise to God that articulate the sense of privilege of being part of what God is doing is absolutely amazing. But we still live with the consequences of our human fallenness. We still live with the consequences of some of our choices. But we live with the dawning of glory. Because we stand in a new place, a place of grace and reconciliation. And we have the challenge to make new choices, choices about obedience and righteous living. We will continue to face real conflicts over sinfulness and righteousness, but we are not defeated because we are not fooling ourselves, because we are not alone, and this is not the end. I'd like us to take a minute just to think about our lives, your life, 
all the things that are personal to you. And in the weeks ahead, as we look at all kinds of issues from anger and sexuality and family and children and all kinds of things, these will be our reference points for the series of what it means to be human. Made from the dirt, made in the image of God, made for relationship and glory, made a mess and being made new in Christ. How does that sum up your life and your understanding of who you are and how you live? Let's take a minute just to reflect on that before I read to you a passage of scripture which all of us constantly need to hear. What then shall we say in response to this? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who is he that condemns? Christ Jesus, who died more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation, will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Which is how Paul brings that section to a close. We're going to sing together. My heart is filled with thankfulness to him who bore my pain, who plumbed the depths of my disgrace and gave me life again. Let's stand together.